A warning to listeners. This episode includes explicit language. And I'd like to point out to everybody here that this can be the greatest party of 1969 that we've had. Yeah! Let's have a party. Outstanding! The Rolling Stones. I, I just felt it, it's an overwhelmed feeling of revulsion. What am I doing here? And these are not my people. This is stupid. And I remember exchanging looks and talk when the other guys in the band think, boy, we gotta get the fuck out of here. There was nothing good about it. I mean, who's fighting what more? Nobody wants to talk about it. You look about it, I mean, I don't want to watch that movie again. I don't want to see my my friends, you know, in a situation like that. Every other scene has been cool. We've got to stop right now, you know, and then we can't. There's no point. I've spent 50 years having to remember this shit, you know what I mean? And it's not nice, man. This was a, probably the worst day, you know, in some respects in the history of the music business, before or since. But like Altamont is like the other side of the coin, the, the other side of the Woodstock coin, you know. It's another way for that whole thing to happen. And it's like unfortunate, but true, you know. It was a heavy thing, it was some kind of heavy thing. And nothing heavy goes down without it being some kind of lesson, you know, or some kind of instruction or something like that. Which is what? Well, I don't know. You know everybody has to look at it and find out. On December 6, 1969, more than 300,000 people came to a free concert at the Altamont Speedway in California. Billed as the West Coast Woodstock, the lineup includes big names like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Jefferson Airplane, Santana, and the Grateful Dead. Headlining it all were the Rolling Stones, the biggest rock band of the era, closing their first U.S. tour in years. On paper, it made perfect sense. It was supposed to be an extension of the peace and love vibe marketed by Woodstock a few months earlier. But right from the beginning, Altamont had a different feel. Darker, more chaotic. By the time it's over, four people will have died. A drowning, two in a hit and run, and one of them beaten and stabbed to death while the Stones played on stage just feet away. The stabbing death of Meredith Hunter, an 18-year-old black man, who'd gone to the concert with his girlfriend, was actually filmed. You can see it if you watch the rock documentary, Gimme Shelter. I've been fascinated with this story since I was a kid, the first time I saw this film. When I mention Altamont to people, mostly they have no idea what I'm talking about. People really don't remember it. So I've spent the past eight months talking about it with the people who were there, trying to recreate what happened and why it happened. This is a story they have to tell. The story of how this concert got so out of hand, who's to blame, and why everyone has tried so hard to forget it. I'm Jeff Edgers, the national arts reporter for The Washington Post, and this is the story of Altamont, the first rock festival disaster. There's really only one place to begin. Let's start with the Rolling Stones. Right. <coughs> My name's Sam Cut. Tell, tell me your name. Yeah, yeah I got it. I got it. I already... I remember things. It's all right. I'm, I'm there. 
My name's Sam Cutler. I was the tour manager for the Rolling Stones on the 1969 tour of the United States. So I looked after the band. It's immediately clear he can tell me everything I need to know, at least the way he saw it. Okay, right. What people get wrong about Altamont, number one is that it was the Rolling Stones' free concert. That's number one. It wasn't the Rolling Stones' free concert. It was a free concert organised by the Grateful Dead, right, and various West Coast bands that wanted to play with the Rolling Stones. Do Do you understand that distinction? And the reason that's important is because when we go to blame somebody, which is what everybody loves to do, right? A a lot of people blame the Rolling Stones, right? Indeed. When you look at Altamont, you look for somebody to blame. That's what I did. But as I started to report on it, that question, who's to blame, gets blurrier. You kind of start wondering not just who's to blame, but why this whole thing went so wrong. And really, why didn't anyone stop it from happening? To answer that, you got to go back further to how the very idea for this concert came about. At this point, in 1969, the Grateful Dead have been holding all these free concerts in Golden Gate Park that are very informal, just kind of like off the cuff with their friends. And we've been doing it for years. It was a good vibe, and there was no fighting and no, no weirdness. This is Mickey Hart. I am a rhythmist drummer mad dog, <laughs> uh, percussionist in the Grateful Dead, and also now in Dead and Company. So I went to his hotel room. He had like a nice humidifier going, and he was on the floor stretching. I mean, there was a lot of stretching. I'm not exactly sure what that was all about. No, I, I, it's too cold in here for me. I just make the Grateful Dead weren't really just a band. They were a lifestyle. It might sound silly, but they live the way you're supposed to if you're in the counterculture. You know, if you're like a hippie and you're expanding your mind... And, forgetting the rules or just breaking the rules. Anyway, throughout 1969, the Dead and the Stones were talking about putting on a free concert in San Francisco. Uh, We were planning it. Actually, it was like our party, but it was exciting, very exciting. What I thought it was, was the Rolling Stones, they came in and they took a lot of money out of the Bay Area and they played quite a bit. And and I thought that this was kind of like a payback. All throughout their tour, the Stones were criticized for high ticket prices and nowhere more so than in the Bay. And I don't think they've done this kind of stuff, you know, free in the park. And we've been doing it for years. The Stones were also filming what would become a documentary of their tour. A massive free show would look great on film. One more reason to push for a concert. So, the Stone said Sam Cutler to meet with the Grateful Dead. He goes down to Mickey Hart's ranch in Novato, California to finalize plans. They called it the Grateful Dead Ranch. The ranch was kind of like the Grateful Dead's headquarters. It's kind of a focal point of our scene. So one day, if I'm right, a guy named Sam Cutler... <laughs> Sam Cutler, right. ...comes to the ranch, That's right? correct. That's do you correct. remember that day, Sam? I do. Sam was the uh, road manager for the Rolling Stones. I never really trusted Cutler. None of us did, really. Well, I went to a meeting with the Grateful Dead, right? Not that I knew what, you know, particularly what that would represent. But, so Sam was representing the, the Stones in all of this. Sam, who was it? Did you get a sense of who was in charge when you went to that, to Mickey Hart's barn? 
Nobody in, was in charge. In the final analysis, everyone had their say, and all 80 people, men, women and children, dogs, a couple of horses, all in a giant barn, with everybody with the right to speak. It was quite a scene. And then the whole barn, all 80 people, would look at Jerry and see what Jerry's kind of approach to it all was. Jerry Garcia, he's kind of the leader of this proudly leaderless band. I like to be uh, to be able to relate to, to everybody as much as I possibly can. That's him talking to journalist Howard Smith on February 11th, 1970. The same interview you heard at the start of this episode. <laughs> I mean, you can't take a big experience out of somebody's life and say, this was it. You know, and that's that's the way that it's been looked at. It just isn't that way. All that stuff is still going on. It's all still going on, only now you're in it, you know, and uh, they're in it, you know, and every, everybody who's listening to this tape is, you know, is in it. Everyone kind of turns toward Jerry, you know, like, what, what does Jerry think? Was he smiling? Was he frowning? Did he think it was a good idea or what, you know? So it was anarchic in extremis. The concert details, those weren't ironed out. In fact, the only thing these people in the barn could agree on was that the bands should meet. The basic idea was that everybody wanted the Rolling Stones to come and hang out with the Grateful Dead prior to the show, and that would somehow or other, you know, magic fairy dust would be sprinkled on everything and everything would be all right. I thought that was, like, chronically naive, very sweet, but ridiculous. Don't go hang out on some fucking hippie ranch in California. Come on, man. You know what I mean? A free concert like this would at least need a location. Security, a venue set up, just the normal stuff. Of course, none of this got resolved at the ranch. You'd think this would be a pretty good time to just set this concert idea to the side and just let it die out. Instead, this happened at a news conference on November 26th. There's a question here on the right, man. Um, I read in one of the papers that you'll be giving a free concert in San Francisco. Ah, now you've come to of the masses, Yes, we are doing a free concert in San Francisco. When? On December 6th. And uh, uh, the location is not Golden Gate Park, unfortunately, but it's somewhere adjacent to it, which is a bit larger, which uh, I won't know until we send Freeze right there. Just think about that. Ten days later, they're going to have a concert in San Francisco, but they don't know exactly where it'll be. I mean, it's a weird thing to do to say, we're going to have this massive free festival. Hundreds of thousands of people are going to go, and we don't know exactly where it is. But what could anyone do? Mick Jagger has spoken and they've got to make it work. The Stones abandon talks with the Grateful Dead. There's no more time to hang out at the ranch. They send a group to San Francisco to figure out how to pull this thing off. They send Sam Cutler, you know, their tour manager. Right, so, okay, here we go. They send Ron Schneider, the Rolling Stones' business manager. I was doing business management and doing all that stuff at the time with them. They send Georgia Bergman. She was Mick Jagger's assistant. Well, it was interesting. So those three, Schneider, Cutler, and Bergman, go to San Francisco, and it's December 1st. Yeah. 
So walk me through that week. Okay, so Monday, Ronnie and I separately get to San Francisco. And they scout locations. Yeah. They find this great site, the Sears Point Raceway. It's owned by the Filmways Production Company. They make Mr. Ed. It's a perfect place. Great parking, easy access, good sight lines. Just a perfect spot. And I just remember that the Sears Point guy was very rude to Ronnie. And I just thought, leave this one alone. They have an argument with Sears Point and their owners over money. And suddenly Sears Point is out. And so suddenly there's no place to have the concert. Was there a point in this process where you're thinking, this is like nuts? Yes. When was that? Thursday. Thursday? Thursday before a Saturday concert? Seriously. What happens Thursday? So we ended up at Melvin Belli's office. That was hilarious. The Stones have reached out to San Francisco attorney Melvin Belli, who is this, you know, celebrity attorney who represented people like Muhammad Ali and Zsa Zsa Gabor. And then the owner of Altamont, Dick Carter, calls and says, hey, you know, I got a place. Altamont, a raceway that's losing money. But Dick Carter's heard that Sears Point is falling through and he's reached out to the Stones. Saying, okay, you can have my place. I'll do it. I agree to everything. Who's signing? Okay, let's just take a second to think about this. Imagine you were sent to San Francisco to sort out this free concert. The first two spots fall through, and you got about a day before people start showing up. You need a location, and this guy's offering his land. What do you do? And I refuse to sign. Why wouldn't you sign it? Because you hated the idea so much? No, I didn't want to put the Stones in a legal position where they were obligated to do something that was totally disorganized. I didn't want to sign for a venue I didn't know. You know, imagine what would have happened today. And John James said, I'll sign. John James is a guy who had no official role with the Stones, but was there basically acting like he did. If John hadn't signed, there still would have been no deal. But he signed. Nobody stopped him. And the concert kept moving forward. At that point, they've been building everything out at Sears Point. The stage, the light tower. Now they got to break everything down and start bringing it to Altamont. And it's quite a distance from San Francisco to the Altamont Pass. As far as I can tell, depending on traffic, maybe it's like a 90-minute drive. It seemed impossible. There's just so much to move and so much to build. So then it was just all hands on deck. And so that's when they start putting out uh, things on the radio to say, anybody who can help, this is what we need. Sounds insane. Sounds insane. Georgia Bergman made a list of things she needed to make this move happen. You want me to read the list yeah. again? Okay. The Stones asked people for these things over the radio. So, guys with strong backs, carpenters, doctors, registered nurses, campers or trailers for the work crew, Food, warm clothes, cooks, heavyweight lumber, a scaffold tower 25 to 30 feet high, four searchlights, and 24 miles of electrical wire. <laughs> 24 miles. Yep. So they start, you know, crazily bringing everything into the Altamont site. It starts to look like maybe this could really work. 
People are coming together, showing up at Sears Point, stuffing equipment into their cars, and bringing it to Altamont. When they start building, it is coming together. You know, I went out the night before with Keith and Mick, and we went out to, to, to Altamont. And it was beautiful. It was cool. You hear the hammers knocking away, and you see these little fires where people burning the wood from the cases that the speakers came in. And it was great. And Keith said, well, I really like this here, Ron. I want to spend the night. So Mick and I left and went back. But that was the feeling we had. Oh, this is like so great, joyous. So Keith Richards decides, I'm just going to stay here. He spends the night at Altamont hanging out with Sam Cutler. And through the night, he can hear people hammering and working. It really seems like this is going to happen. But the fact is, they're rushing. There's no time for a normal concert setup. And later, when everybody's trying to figure out where it all went wrong, many people will point to this moment and to the stage. The stage, I'm sitting at a table talking to you, right? The stage wasn't as high as the table I'm sitting at right now. Can you imagine that? Imagine that. It looks like it was also like kind of tied together with like twine. Or exactly. Something. It was a fucking joke. And the show should never have gone on with that stage, number one. Number two, they put the stage in the wrong place. The stage should have been at the top of the hill, not at the fucking bottom. And I blame Chipmunk for that, fairly and squarely. Your title was stage director? No, I was lighting director and production management. This is Chip Monk. When did you learn, we're going to have a show at this Altamont? Somebody told me we're going to have a show and get ready for it. And I go see the site and I say, ah, wonderful. And I go try and find scaffold in order to build the five-foot stage, which would have been very helpful because you were either on it and off it. You couldn't just make a step and get up to be that three foot or just heist yourself up easily. So this is, from what I gather, this is only days before that show, right? Yes, exactly. There is no time. It isn't that you can call your local scaffolding company and wait for a day for them to load it and bring it in a truck and then get it assembled and then put tops on it and, 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 you know. There is preparation that's necessary. When I see that stage in Altamont, I'm thinking, why did the stones, the Rolling Stones, why do they have a stage that's so short and it looks like it was no, tied sure, together by twine? No, yes, indeed. It's not very tall vertically. Why, though? Why, why because that's the same stuff that we had at the Filmways site for an uphill presentation, and there was nothing I could do to get any other. So at Sears Point, the Filmways site, you can imagine a short stage at the top of a hill. That would be perfect. But at Altamont, it's at the bottom. If you've ever been in a crowd, you know what it's like when the band starts playing. People start to push from behind. Somebody needs to keep these people away. They want to know if we just help keep people off the stage. That was our sole job. This is Flash. He was a member of the San Francisco chapter of the Hells Angels. And my name's Gordon Grove. My friends call me Flash. I was a member of the Fisker Charter. Yeah? The Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. The Hells Angels Motorcycle Gang were brought in to protect the bands that would play at Altamont. So they ask you to just do what you... They don't say security. That word is not used. No. All they just do is just keep people off the stage. 
We said, yeah, no problem, we'll do that. They were hired to stand on stage and paid in beer. Well, just give us some beer. I said, okay, well, I don't remember if it was $500 or $200, but, but uh, would that do for beer? I said, sure. This kind of arrangement had worked before. Grace Slick, one of the lead singers for Jefferson Airplane, remembered how the Angels helped them. Uh, we'd done a number of uh, concerts in the park, Golden Gate Park. And the Hells Angels had uh, been kind of there to make sure everything went okay. And they never messed with anybody. They were always okay. And when somebody would get on the stage, they're not supposed to be there, they'd just go over and tell them not to. They didn't punch them or anything. So we said we could get the Hells Angels to uh, be the uh, security. Uh, And Jagger didn't know Hells Angels from anything, but he kind of likes that uh, edgy stuff. So he said, okay. Can I ask you, because I've read this in a bunch of different places, but so why was there no desire? There was a desire to not have the police there. Yes. Explain that to me. Well, they didn't like people with long hair. They knew we smoked dope and stuff, so they'd try and catch us doing that. So we, in turn, didn't want them around. The Hells Angels are not going to take us to jail. They don't do that. But they can be tough, like a cop can be tough. So we preferred having the Hells Angels be a security. The Hells Angels, for whatever reason, were seen as kind of the outlaw brothers by the counterculture. Nobody really thought too hard about it. They figured everything would be all right, just like every other time. But not everyone had such a positive view of the Angels. Here's Greel Marcus. Back then, he was a 24-year-old writer for Rolling Stone magazine, who'd seen the Angels in action at an anti-war march. They're right-wing, misogynist, racist, um, dope-dealing gang. It's all the Hells Angels were. The writer, Hunter S. Thompson, embedded himself with the San Francisco and Oakland chapters for a book in 1967. Uh, 11 o'clock here. Seems like 7 in the morning. When you listen to these recordings, you can hear this dark, creepy side of the angels as he hides inside a car recording them prowling around outside. Well, there's several hundred people here. I can't tell how many in the darkness you don't know. And the people who don't know me uh, not only resent me, but uh, worry about me. The, uh, the situation doesn't fit them. They're either more guilty than they uh, really are you know, by the law, or they're, or they're less guilty. They are like, there we go. It's obvious now that uh, this is a very peculiar situation. The Angels eventually turned on Hunter, famously beating him up while he's writing a book about him. And, uh, everybody's drunk now, and there have been a hundred drunken Hells Angels around this, within a hundred yards of the car, within fifty yards of the car, and Fine Bar is about twenty-five yards away. I got to come into the car to do any taping because. Uh, the sight of this thing would uh, drive them to madness. They'd uh, burn the machine. Hells Angels don't do security. Hells Angels fight. David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young says this decision, getting the Hells Angels for security, is where Altamont went wrong. They like to fight. It's part of their M.O. They fight all the time. They like it. They're good at it. It's part of their thing, okay? If you don't want the tiger to eat your lunch guests, 
don't invite the fucking tiger to the lunch. It's early Saturday morning. The sun hasn't come up. It's cold. Somehow the concert site is built. Volunteers have been working all night. It's perfectly set up to herd people toward this short stage. Toward Hell's Angels who will beat you to the edge of your life if you just give them a reason. There's no parking, no hospital, no food, no shelter. Some of the best bands in rock and roll are about to show up. The dead are ready nearby. Jefferson Airplane are coming from Miami. Keith Richards is spending the night here. And 300,000 fans are about to descend onto the hills surrounding Altamont. Audio from this episode is from Rhino Records, the Hunter S. Thompson Archives, and the Howard K. Smith Archives. Come back for episode two, and you'll hear what it's like when the concert starts. <laughs>